Corbin sang that song a couple weeks ago, and I told him that should be the theme song for the book of Hebrews. It indeed is so rich with wonderful theology, focusing on the high priest and our substitutionary atonement that we have in Christ, the fact that he is our substitute and our savior. And before the throne, he pleads our cause. I hope you uh, become familiar with that hymn, and you're going to hear it over and over again. Michigan is divided into 14 different districts, and there is a person in each district who represents our state in Washington, D.C., in the House, U.S. House of Representatives. So there before the federal government, they are the voice of Michigan. Our area seems to be divided over four major representatives. The third is Peter Meyer, the fourth is John Mulinar, the seventh, Tim Wahlberg, and the eighth, Elissa Slotland. And these individuals represent us. Now, you may not like how they represent you, but that is what they are seeking to do, or they are supposed to do. They are supposed to be there for you, representing your needs before the federal government. Now, this is not a new concept. In fact, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis and find out that we had a representative in the garden, a moral representative, not a political representative. We didn't elect this representative. God chose this representative, literally created him. Adam was in the garden representing all of his posterity, the seed of Adam, every human being who would be born into the world is represented in Adam. Now, you may not like how he represented you, but I dare say if we were there, we would have done the same thing. And the genius of it all is that one person could represent us in the fall, so one person, Jesus, could represent us before the throne. We have this moral representative. But when you follow the history of redemption in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, you'll notice that there apparently was some primitive or early sacrificial system that Abel was involved with. This is Genesis chapter 4. So after Adam's poor decision, uh, there is a sacrificial system to again bring people in a right relationship with God. But a well-developed sacrificial system is found in the book of Leviticus, where you have now priests who are from the tribe of Levi and sacrifices and offerings for our sins. These individuals were not elected. They are chosen. And one Levite, the brother of Moses, Aaron, becomes the head of the priestly system. He becomes the very first high priest. And you might have had a problem with the high priest, but nonetheless, he was there for you, representing your case in matters having to do with God. And that's exactly what we find in the book of Hebrews. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5 today, and we're going to look at the nature of the priesthood, because in the first four verses 
the writer of Hebrews, writing to a Jewish congregation, that's why it's called to the Hebrews, to Jewish believers. That's why he deals so much with the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. So he's basically giving us a virtual definition of what the high priest, who he is, and what he is supposed to do. So you'll notice verse 1 of chapter 5, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent people, the people, in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So that is his task. He is the representative for the people before God. Now there's some qualifications for a high priest. Verse 2 says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. So the first requirement is, is that he must be one of us. He must be sympathetic. God didn't take the high priest from the angels. He took the high priest from people. And by being sympathetic, he shows that God is sympathetic and that there is a way to this sympathetic God. Showing sympathy arrives from the fact that he has his own infirmities or weaknesses. So that's why he is able to deal gently. By the way, this is a fascinating word, deal gently. It's actually two Greek words brought together. One is where we get our English word meter or to measure. And the other Greek word is pathos or passion. So it is measured passion. Now you say, well, what does that mean? Uh, one individual, a Greek scholar, says the idea of moderation when circumstances might provoke severity. So here's the picture. You come to the high priest and you say, I've sinned. And he says, I understand it. I'm a sinner too. And you come back next week. I've sinned. Here's my sacrifice. He says, well, I understand that. I'm a sinner too. You come back a third week and he says, what in the world are you doing here? And then begins to chide the people. Now, I'm not saying that we should keep on sinning, but I am saying we keep on sinning. Right? Notice the difference? But he is sympathetic. He has this moderation of sympathy. That is, instead of being severe and lashing out at us, he knows what we're made of. And that's why Jesus said, if someone sins 70 times 7 and asks for forgiveness, you should what? I'm glad I have a high priest who knows something about sin. And that was the case in this situation. So, first he has to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And this is a reference to the Day of Atonement, verse 3. He offers sacrifices for own sin, his own sins first, and then he goes in and offers sac sacrifices for the people's sins. That's what the human high priest has to do. Now, this subject is going to be developed a little further in chapter 9 and 10 of Hebrews, so we're not going to spend as much time on it today, but it is worth 
looking at deeply. Second qualification is found in verse 4, that he must be called of God. No one takes this honor on himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was, the first high priest. So you can go back to Exodus chapter 28 and read about the calling of God and the appointment of the Levitical priesthood. There is a necessity of divine appointment to this very special position. No one volunteers for this job. No one is elected democratically. Now, some have tried to take the job on themselves, like Korah in Numbers chapter 15, where they began to play the role of the priest and the earth opened up and swallowed them up. That shows you what God thought of that. And then King Uzziah in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26, who again took the role of the priest, and the priest said, no, this is not right. And he said, I'm going to do it anyway. And when he went into the temple, he turned into a leper. And God says, no one takes this position on, on their own. Now, it's very interesting that at this point in time, historically, the high priest was, uh, the whole office of the high priest had been defiled. Way back, uh, uh, I think about, what, 125, 150 B.C., whatever it was, Antiochus Epiphanes came in and desecrated the temple and ruined the priesthood. And from that time on, the priests were just kind of elected by the rulers, the high priest was more a political position instead of a real representative before God. And so the people didn't think too much of the priest, of the high priest. They thought he was a crook. Many of the people did. But the writer of Hebrews is putting forth the ideal that is found in Aaron and the purpose of God. So the qualifications are you have to be sympathetic, one of the people representing the people, so you can represent them sympathetically, and you must be chosen of God. So the question is, does Jesus qualify? Now, he'd already talk, started talking about the high priest in chapter 4, but now he's going to show that Jesus indeed qualifies so in verse 5, you have this wonderful phrase, in the same way, Christ. So let's compare the high priest, the writer says. You know what the ideal should be? Let's see if Jesus matches that ideal. In the same way, Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. So he actually goes to the second qualification we noticed first, the idea of divine selection or appointment. Christ didn't take this glory on upon himself. Did you ever think about that? It was the Father who sent him. So he fulfills this divine appointment. And basically he uses the book of Psalms to show it. Psalm chapter 2 in verse 7 is a psalm, is a verse that we've already seen. Psalm 2-7 was quoted back in chapter 1, verse 5, to show us that Jesus indeed is divine, God the Son. You are my Son today, 
and I have become your father. So when talking about being chosen by God, he also emphasizes the fact that he is God. While Jesus is similar to the high priest, he is also dissimilar and greater than in many ways. And here is one of them. High priest wasn't God. He was representing the people before God. And that's what Jesus is going to do, but he is God, which makes it very amazing. And then he goes down in verse 6 and quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4. In another place, he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we've been talking about the Aaronic priesthood, but now Jesus is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And again, we're going to get into the subject of this particular priestly order later on, But the point is that now Jesus is both divine and indeed is a priest. But how do you take verse 4 out of Psalm 110 and apply it to Jesus? The readers might ask. I mean, you're just grabbing a verse from nowhere and saying it belongs to Christ. Well, here's the brilliance of the writer. He's already shared with them Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he's mentioned these verses before, but now he brings them all together and shows that Jesus indeed is both divine son and appropriate or appointed priest in an order that's better than the Aaronic one and he's also a king because he has ascended to his throne in Qumran they thought two messiahs were going to come one priestly one kingly one from the line of Aaron and one from the line of David but in Jesus they're both combined adding the kingly quality or adding the divine quality as well He is God the Son, he is a priest forever, and he is indeed the one who reigns on David's throne. One other great dissimilarity between Christ and the high priest is that Jesus has to offer no sacrifice for his own sins, right? Chapter 4 said, he is our high priest, tempted in all points like we are. Yet he never sinned. So he doesn't have to go before the Father and say, okay, Lord, this is for my sin first. Remember if the high priest walked into the Holy of Holies without an offering for his own sin, he'd die. And then he would go out and bring another offering in for the sins of the people. Jesus just brought his offering to the Father for the sins of the world. So in the same way, he is called God. In the same way, he is a priest forever. And in the same way, he is one of us representing us before God. That to me is amazingly powerful. But there was a second qualification for a high priest, not only appointed by God, but he has to be one of the people and truly representing them. And that's where we pick up in verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, or literally during the days of his flesh, 
He offered up prayers and petitions with loud or fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission, his humble submission before the will of God. There is nowhere in the gospel accounts where it talks about these types of loud cries and tears. The Bible does tell us about the tears of Christ. He wept over Jerusalem, according to Luke chapter 19. It tells us about the tears of Christ when he was at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, and Jesus wept. But now he's weeping for himself. He who weeps for others weeps for himself, or so it appears. Pastor Doug read wonderfully from Matthew chapter 26, and you cannot read that portion of Scripture lightly. You have to get into the text, and it is unbelieving. The closest gospel account, and it appears that this is pointing to the agony in the garden, the closest gospel account to talk about loud cries and tears is Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 37 he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Sorrow is killing him. Have you ever said that to someone? I am so broken I could die. My heart is so devastated I want to die. And then we read in verse 39 the request. Because the request is not mentioned in Hebrews, but here's the request. Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Theologians love to debate what Jesus was actually praying for when he said, take this cup from me. And I think this gets into the mystery of divine and human where we can't easily give answers. So some people are saying that Jesus was praying, I don't want to die. Get me out of this. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't have let it go this far. I don't know if that is what they say. But they're saying, I don't want to die. Lord, keep me from dying. Because it does say uh, later on that he was praying to the one who could save him from death. Well, that's in verse 7. Praying to the one who could save him. So maybe that's what he was praying for, to be saved from death. Others say he was being prayed, uh, praying to be saved out of death which could be the translation of the original. Save me out of death so that the resurrection would fulfill that prayer. I read once, and I kind of lean in this direction, that when he looked at the cup and saw what was in the cup, what's in the cup? The sin of all mankind. The cup is often used as a goblet of iniquity or of wrath the just wrath of God against sin. He knew what was in the cup. And perhaps hesitated to drink. Here's the perfect, pure son of God to now be acquainted with sin. And what happens when Jesus becomes sin for us? My God, my God, why have you? That's never happened before. 
God forsaken of God. How do you split the Trinity? There's no explanation for that. I can understand Jesus saying, boy, if there's another way. But I think he knew there was another way. And this is the passion of our Savior weeping over the events of the cross. And he was heard. Now, if Jesus was praying that he wouldn't die, and the scripture says that he was heard, last part of verse 7, he was heard, his prayer request was answered, wouldn't you and I say, um, no, I don't think so, <laughs> because he died. And this is a good lesson for us, that sometimes our prayers do not end up as we expect or desire. Especially when we pray, not my will, but thine be done. That's the way every prayer should be offered. Not my will, but thine be done. I have a loose grasp on the will of God for the future. The revealed will of God is, is there for us in the scriptures, but the sovereign will, the mysterious will of God, as he arranges the events of this world, that indeed is hard to grasp. And when I say, Lord, heal me, I may not know what the sovereign will of God is. Like the blind man, blind man in John chapter 10, who has allowed the sickness for the glory of God. I want you to note that Jesus did not avoid suffering and he was the sinless son of God. And his prayer was answered and yet he still died. So perhaps we ought to change our theology and practice of prayer and get more in tune with submission to the will of God because that's why he was heard. He was submissive, reverent, to God's perfect plan. By the way, this is Jesus going to the throne of grace and being heard and receiving help in his time of need. Just like he told us to do in chapter 4. In the days of his flesh, wow, the Son of God became a man in the days of his flesh. Look at verse 8. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Isn't that interesting? The New English Bible translates it, he learned obedience in the school of suffering. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where the verb to learn is connected with Jesus. Now, now maybe, maybe Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where it says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So there is progress and growth there. But he learned. What does that mean? He learned obedience. He knew exactly what it was to obey God. He know, knew exactly what it was the, the human beings ought to do to obey God, but he never as a human being experienced that obedience. 
And he had to actually move into that experience. That's part of the incarnation. To become like us, to suffer with us, human weaknesses, and for us on the cross, that he might represent us before the Holy Father in heaven. Jesus learned obedience. John chapter 2, verse 25, Jesus needed no one to testify to him of man because he knew what was in man. Yet consent to the Father's will is not the same as doing the Father's will. And Jesus had to experience human weakness and vicarious death on our behalf. I tell you, it's hard to enter in this. You and I need to understand that mere consent to the will of God is not doing the will of God, right? We acknowledge that something is true, but until we embrace it and experience it and practice it, obedience, we're not obeying the will of God. We learn obedience, and it often comes in the school of suffering. When did this happen? In the days of his flesh. How did he learn? By the things that he suffered. And I tell you, obeying God in a fallen world is never easy. Maybe it has been for you for quite a long time. And out of the blue, God allows some trial to hit you smack upside of the face, and it almost floors you. Like a, like a punch from a champion boxer. And you're down on the canvas. And you're not sure if you're going to get up. And you say, why me? You're in the ring, aren't you? Aren't you a Christian? Yeah. In a fallen world? Yeah. Why not you? Of course it's going to come to you. But that's one of our normal responses. In fact, Peter anticipates this response. It must have been common in that day because he said, don't, don't call the fiery trial which is to test you. Don't think of it as some strange thing that is happening to you. Now, that doesn't mean we ought to develop some uh, perverted joy in difficulty. Now, that's absurd. But we need to learn that when it comes, it also came to our Savior, and we are to be like him. Now think of Jesus, the sinless Savior. He had to suffer all night prayers, 40 days without food, the bickering and posturing of his disciples. I mean, think about that. One of the things I love about the TV series The Chosen and this was depicted so well in the second season episode 3 Jesus is healing people all day long in fact there's a line like people waiting to see the doctor and it's an all day thing and late at night the disciples are around the campfire and they begin to argue and the arguing gets heated as they're going after each other and now they're standing up ready to exchange blows when Jesus Late at night, comes shuffling back into the camp. Barely can walk. Exhausted. With a quick gesture, he says to the disciples, good night. 
and barely makes it to the tent. He has trouble taking off his sandals, and his mother Mary comes and helps him, washes his hands and his feet and his face. And Jesus says to her, I'm a mess. And then he says, I'm so tired. And goes to sleep. And he says, show me that chapter verse in the Bible. Well, it's not really there. But it is there. Because you and I don't meditate long enough on the humanity of Christ. And this episode brings it forcefully to our hearts that while we're bickering and we're complaining, our Savior went through it all and suffered. Not just on the cross. And it wasn't easy. You and I need to learn obedience in times of suffering. Life for Jesus was characterized by suffering from the womb to the tomb, one theologian said. And Jesus accomplished the greatest obedience at the cost of his greatest suffering. Now, again, it would be great to spend some time on verse 9 and 10, the fact that he was once made perfect. He's always been perfect, but now he has completed the word perfect can, can also mean completion. He's now brought to completion the saving drama, the saving plan of God. The God who designed him to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus becomes the source or the cause for eternal salvation. Later on, it's going to be described as eternal redemption or eternal inheritance or an eternal covenant, but Jesus is the source because of what he has suffered, because of his obedience. That's great stuff. But if you really want to understand what this is all about, we come to verse 11, and now we go from the nature of the priesthood to the nature of the problem, the nature of the human condition, or the, the human response to all of this about the grace High priest. Or maybe, I'm sure it is not relegated only to them, but it certainly was, uh, was true of them. Verse 11, we have much to say about this, this priesthood, Melchizedek, the eternal salvation that Christ offers. We have much to say about this, and he will. But I have to pause, the writer says, because it is hard to explain it to you. Because you are dull of hearing. Hard to explain. The writer's frustrated. There's so much more I want to say. The difficulty's not in the complexity of the message, but in the reluctance of the hearers. It's not in your intellectual limitations, but it is actually in the defic deficiency of your motivation. Another Bible translates it like this. You no longer are trying to understand. You no longer want to learn. Apparently this must have come, some, come from some encounter with them before. Like he could say, the last time I was with you, it was very evident to me that you've stopped listening. 
And so now he's giving all this rich theology, but he has to confess, you know, I need to pause here and say, this is hard. It's hard to explain because you're not trying to understand. As great as this is, you're missing it all. This whole idea of listening. Listening takes energy. And when you think about it, we are not very good listeners. We really aren't. A man said to his friends, my wife just told me that I don't listen well. That's a very strange way to start a conversation. Think about it. I think we are poor listeners. Often when someone is speaking, we're thinking about what we're going to say. When someone else is talking, we're thinking about, I wish I were away. And when God talks, how well do you listen? Do you read the Bible through a year, every year? Do some of you do that? It's a great thing to do. If you do that, you will have days where you read for the mileage and not for the message to check off the little box. I've had to go back and read a, pas a passage that I already read because I realized I wasn't engaged. Now, we're, we're not very good listeners. And these people weren't listening. They were dull of hearing. They were sluggish. I've got cars. I've had cars like that. You know, all gummed up inside. You push on the gas and nothing happens. It's like there's no motivation whatsoever. There's no energy. They're not in sync with you, the driver. Jesus is the one who said they have ears, but they do not hear. Verse 12, in fact, by this time, you should be teachers. And yet, you need someone to teach you. The elementary truths, the basic principles of God's word all over again. Notice, by this time, they've been converted for a significant period of time. I don't know how long, but long enough that they should be instructing others. But they still need to be spoon-fed as a baby would. They need someone to teach them, again, the ABCs. And a good definition of that is found in chapter 6, verse 1, the elementary principles about Christ. It doesn't mean that the gospel is milk, and once you know it, you leave it. But they were just talking about little basic truths, and they weren't getting into the deeper truth. What's the deeper truth? The book of Hebrews. And the message of Christ being a high priest. By this time, you should have advanced. But by this time, you're still infants. You should be in the classroom, but you're still in the crib. And you've not made any progress. What an indictment. But please understand, this indictment comes between two wonderful pictures of the high priest interceding on our behalf for our weakness or for our sin so that we might be cleansed. Spiritual infants, that's what they're called. They like milk and not meat. 
You know, an infant is not very discerning. They'll put mud in their mouth as well as take milk. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, I don't address you as spiritual, but as worldly. You're mere infants in Christ. He implied you should be better. Newborn babes crave spiritual milk, 1 Peter chapter 2. That's right for newborn babes, but you should be mature, or at least moving on into maturity. You need milk, verse 12, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still an infant, not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, which I think is just another phrase to talk about the teaching of Christ. The righteous truth and a righteous way to live. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to discern good from evil. So your spiritual infants, because you don't have the motivation to try to learn and listen, your spiritual infants, because you've not trained yourself in the word of righteousness, with the word of righteousness, so that you can discern what is good and what is evil. And boy, our world has no ability to discern today good from evil. And we better not lose that as a church, and it comes to us when we walk away from the word. Jesus learned and grew, and so... Should we? The humorist David Barry once said, you're, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. Well, that's true spiritually. I mean, we see people like that physically, but what about spiritually? I'm not saying that you have to be a theologian in the official professional sense of that term. Most of us aren't. But you need to grow. In the word of God. The power of discernment comes from a trained mind in the deep things of God. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, Colossians says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Train your senses in the word of righteousness, the living word, so that you can discern what is good and what is evil. By God's grace, let's not stay babies. Let's move forward. Heavenly Father, the book of Hebrews has a tendency to step on our toes and not gently. But if we would see the warning passages as designed with the, the powerful purpose of restoration, if we would see the convicting work of the Word of God designed to bring us back to a life that is rich and full, to bring us back to Christ. Oh Lord, I pray, even right now, in our hearts, you will examine us to see if, if we've stopped listening. 
If we think that the things of God are dull and the word of God is boring. Lord, if that has happened, it is a judgment. A judgment we can only recover from by going to the throne of grace and looking for help, mercy, and grace in our spiritual time of need. Let's take a moment to pray. Examine your heart before the throne and look to your high priest who intercedes for you so that you might be right with the Father. Let's pray.